Hello and welcome to Tomlin's Harmonica Podcast, where I'll be hanging out with players and teachers and having conversations loosely based around harmonica. This week's guest is a fantastic harmonica player, performer, and songwriter. Having given up a career as a software engineer to become a musician, he's gone on to develop a unique style blending classic West Coast blues harmonica with traditional Indian music. He is the inimitable Aki Kumar. Welcome to the podcast, Aki. How are you doing? How you doing? How you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Yeah. Good to be here. It's uh, still a little bit early for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But, you know, I'll get used to it. You seem like a pleasant fellow. <laughs> I, I will I will try to maintain that for, for the, the course of our conversation. <laughs> um, so for people who don't know where, whereabouts you're based, where, where are you currently? Um, San Jose, California. Awesome. And uh, what, what's it? Uh, I'm getting straight into the COVID chat, but what, what's it like there at the moment? Um, you know, most things are shut down. It's, you know, still kind of in semi-quarantine grocery stores are open and, and some other businesses are open but you can't get a haircut and <laughs> bars are closed for good reason uh, but this is you know what they call the San Francisco Bay Area mm-hmm. and it's been mostly mostly okay as far as people following protocol and stuff as compared to the rest of the Wild West in the United States um, so we're doing all right I mean I, I, my case in particular you know, I'm here with my wife and uh, in our place in San Jose, and we're doing okay. Um, so far, so good. Nice. Um, so you, you've you've not got back to gigging uh, in actual venues yet, have you? No, and I don't plan to. There have been some offers coming in from here and there. Uh, some venues have kind of made us an attempt at uh, opening, half opening, kind of mm. opening with a distant stage, but. To me, I'm not quite comfortable yet. I mean, not that there are that many gigs. I'm talking one a month maybe at best. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think I'm uh, like mentally ready to go out and start performing and, and all that just yet. Do you know, it's, uh, it's sad that that's how you feel. But I'm, I'm also really happy um, to meet someone else who feels like that. Because like, yeah. I'm, I'm still in... in quite nervous mode you know i haven't been in the same room with my band for four months and like right, i got right, the itch right, right. but right but i'm, I'm also well not... it's 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 difficult it's a difficult decision to make uh really because the the pressure of uh this industry can cause you to kind of you know take some limited risks if i can call it that you know like measured risks so for instance no i don't gig but and and this podcast is a one-on-one on live things so it's different but there have been live streams where I kind of have to do it and I often have to call uh, either a guitar player a friend of mine or you know somebody I've been playing with for years Uh, but I have to make this decision that okay at this point we're gonna be in a a space like this and I'm hoping that that guy's also following protocol and not you know hanging out on the beach all day with a thousand other people Uh, so there's that limited context of interaction as a musician uh, uh, but the, the larger context of having to go out and then potentially face uh, a larger number of people who you do not know, and you know you don't want to. At least I don't want to be out there spreading anything or mm-hmm. receiving anything just yet. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Um, I actually I watched the the duo gig that you did uh, for Sony Music India on oh, Facebook, yeah. and it was it was really good and. Uh, I know I sound surprised. I'm not. I'm not surprised, but it was. En- no, no, please. <laughs> the, you know, the thing that surprised me. It wasn't the. You know, the quality of the music is kind of. I'm. I'm expecting that. But what. What was cool is it felt very intimate for a listener. Like I. I felt like you were sitting with me, and playing and telling me stories and giving me some context, and that was something that I haven't experienced in in a club or in like a proper venue ever so that was kind of special well good i'm glad it felt that way i've been trying to keep uh, a lot of these you know uh broadcast spot uh, live streams uh uh in that spirit uh i think it's important for people to feel that because they're kind of locked down at home and and you almost want to at least i you know in my head i want to deliver something that's like a like a house concert you know yeah. like i was in their living room playing for them that's what i want to go for so i'm glad you felt that way man. 
No, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I, I've kind of asked everyone whether, you know, lockdown is shit. That's that's a given. But has it been a good opportunity to work on new things that you maybe didn't have time to before? Um, the lockdown period, you mean? This, yeah. This period? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, shoot, I'm working on drums. I've been, you know, I'm like a complete rank amateur beginner drummer but man i'm a good one <laughs> <laughs> i've just been banging on those drums for three months and just trying to you know work on some real fundamental techniques so i can uh, hopefully be of service to this little music scene here once we come out of this you know and uh, i'm working on songwriting I've just started to get over my fear of tendonitis and started to play guitar as well. I mean, right there is a lot of practice hours a day for no particular reason. There's frivolous, you know, goals uh, from like 20 years ago that I'm trying to fulfill in some way. Um, and you know, then there's all, all the other stuff that I'm doing, setting up audio recording, which I've not done. Uh, a lot of video stuff, learning how to connect a phone to a computer and, and then another phone and uh, trying the stuff called OBS. And it, it's like every day is a learning experience and, and, you know, how to frame myself on camera and not mm -hmm. have too much back. You know, everything is a learning experience because the context has changed. Uh, we're, I'm no longer on stage. There's no longer an interactive audience. Even when you do a live stream, you kind of have to visualize an audience out there to keep your uh, to sustain your energy levels mm. uh, otherwise it's very easy to kind of just you know lose uh, steam and 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 just do a flat performance which i don't want to do so so yeah man i mean i could go on and on it's a it's actually been a period of growth for me and i'm very uh i should say privileged that i can enjoy this while you know while this moment in time exists it's uh, it's really funny that, that you should say that because I, I had a, a realization about six weeks ago uh, when people were talking about the potential for coming out of, of lockdown. And obviously, we're still quite a way off coming out of it properly. But um, I, I felt guilty because I didn't want to come out of lockdown because like you, this has been such a positive experience in terms of I've, I've started playing keyboard, so that's a new thing I've started learning. So I'm a complete beginner on keyboard, like you're a complete beginner on drums, um, and started chromatic harmonica. The thing that really piqued my interest is you mentioned tendonitis, fear of tendonitis. Um, I, I, I need to delve deeper down this because I used to be a guitarist, and I got tendonitis in both my wrists and had to stop, and that's why I started playing harmonica. So what's is there a similar story in your history um, nothing i don't know what the specific reason would be but uh, as you mentioned earlier i i was I, I, my, my previous career was a software engineer and i wasn't like um, an executive or anything i was a programmer i would sit you know my butt down in front of a computer screen for 12 to 14 hours a day and write code um and you do that for a decade or more um you develop bad posture and, and some bad habits. Um, I also, I don't know. It may have just been a long-standing injury. I've tried to play tennis over the years, and it hasn't worked out because of tennis elbow. I played played foosball for years, and it was probably a bad thing to do uh, that added to the tendonitis. So over the years, I've had this issue where uh, it came down to, like in my early 30s, there was a, a span of a few weeks where I couldn't even hold the bullet microphone wow. in my hand. I had to give up my gigs uh, uh, because that's how bad it got. So in my head, I've always always been like, no chance, I'm not going to play guitar. I want to, but it's not going to happen. And now that I have this period of time, uh, this indefinite period of time, I'm thinking, well, okay, if I do get injured, let's say, in, in, a, in a small way, I mean, it's not that I'm being irresponsible, but let's say I hurt my wrist, at least I have a week or two to recover and no gigs to lose because of it. So that's where I'm, you know, that's where my head's at with regard to the tendonitis. Fair, fair. Yeah, it's, uh, com computers are, are a wonderful thing, but um, they've definitely kind of impacted uh, I used to be a web designer, so I, I, I totally get the kind of sitting in yeah. front of a computer all day and, and what it does to you. Yeah. 
it physically and yeah. emotionally. <laughs> yeah, it does. In fact, one of the reasons for the switch and where I had to say I'm not going back to that world was because I was mentally drained at the end of mm -hmm. these work. It's, it's, it's not easy to uh, commit yourself mentally more than anything to problem solving and then come out at the other end and be all fresh and creative and musical. And that's you know, another aspect of that life. Definitely. Oh, that's definitely something I wanted to, to talk about. Uh, but I, I want to go back a couple of steps just to kind of uh, the, the origin story, because um, you were you were born in Mumbai, weren't you? Yeah, I was born and raised in Mumbai. Excellent. And did you come from a, a musical family? Uh, not a musical family in the sense that, that any of uh, my you know, family members are musicians, but my parents in particular, they love listening to music. So they were consumers of music mm -hmm. uh, in different ways. And uh, I know, uh, like, if my mom had the, the privilege and opportunity uh, or access to proper music education or the luxury of pursuing a career, she probably would have taken a stab at it because I, I know she's got a musical spirit. So uh, there was a musical context mm. in, within the family, although we weren't musicians, you know. And, and did you uh, get started on, on other uh, instruments when you were younger before you, you discovered harmonica? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's before because my dad had this uh, uh, Chinese tremolo harmonica. It's almost like, uh, I don't know why this tradition exists in India, probably ties to some of the older Bollywood songs that have had harmonica. but. Uh, and there was a famous movie in the 70s called Sholi that had this really classic chromatic harmonica line. Not that anyone knew it was chromatic. So we had these tremolo harmonicas, probably cheap ones. My dad had one. He would try to play. And I know I, over the years, tried to play the same harp. Mm -hmm. So there was that, you know, an instrument. But when I was about nine years old, ten years old, um, my my school had started, you know, offering musical uh, instruction, uh, just in, like a beginner course in uh, traditional Indian music for kids. And that's where I got my first uh, uh, exposure to harmonium. So that's, you know, going to be a keyboard and and a little bit of tabla for about a month. So I had dabbled in, you know, I was a child, but I still mm -hmm. knew what what this instrumentation was and what what a scale was, uh, what a flat note was as a result of that, you know, what uh, four counters. Those concepts kind of came in early because of that one course I took, and they kind of stuck with me. That's cool. And so, like, when when was the moment when you started kind of realizing that harmonica and kind of diatonic harmonica was was the thing for you? When when did that happen? Um, I don't even know what a diatonic harmonica was. As I said, you know that uh, I when I started playing that tremolo harp like in my, I was a teenager at that point, and I realized, oh, there's notes that are not there, and this is not a complete instrument. And then uh, I remember listening to blues breakers, like there's a lot of uh, uh, Brit blues, mm -hmm. uh, John Mayall, uh, he had an album where he plays a Rice Miller, uh, Bye Bye Birdie, I think. Um, that was another moment that where I went, holy moly, what is this? I, I don't know what this is. I didn't even know about Rice Miller. I just thought this guy just made this song up. Um, that was another very clear moment where I wanted to play the diatonic. So, yeah, there were like many moments uh, over the span of a year or two where I decided to uh, uh, reassess my opinion of the diatonic harmonic. <laughs> very cool. It's um, that was something that I was kind of, I was struggling to to piece together from from kind of various bios that I read of you. Um, I wasn't sure if you actually had worked as a software engineer or if you just kind of moved over and then were yeah. you were instantly uh, brought over to the dark side and became a musician. Uh, was that was no. there there was a little bit more time? Uh, a lot more time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because my whole entire purpose of you know being in the United States was to to be a software engineer. Mm -hmm. um, and that was also how I was going to stay in the United States. That was my only uh, access to a visa, a work visa. So that's what I did. And I had no intention of jeopardizing that in any way. So 
I was a good software engineer for many years and, <laughs> uh, you know, did music, kind of started taking lessons with David Barrett on the side uh, with no expectations other than let's see if I can get better at doing something. Um, and from then on, when I realized how much I loved doing that, that's when the dark side started to, you know, reshape my brain a little bit. <laughs> And uh, cool. but it, I mean, I worked as a software engineer for 12 years. Wow. So that's not that's not you know just a short, short span of time. It's uh, it's been a long journey. Yeah. No, that's just that's a serious chunk of time. Yeah. Um, and I I, th I mean I'm very very jealous at at you know you having such an amazing mentor uh, in in David Barrett. Uh, yeah. Like that 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 must have been quite quite fundamental in um, everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, it's easy to get spoiled when you have access to like a resource like that. Uh, but that said, I knew very quickly that he was a special t instructor because you know we all going through schooling and we have been exposed to teachers over the years. Uh, you have different teachers and different uh, teachers in different contexts and uh, different subjects and all that. This guy is probably the best one I've ever, uh, you know, had to had the pleasure of working with and it was very apparent very quickly so it wasn't that I felt like it wasn't like it's always a drag man I got to go to these harmonica lessons and I really don't want to do it was never like that because I always felt excited about going to a David Barrett lesson and we did one lesson a month so it was paced you know mm -hmm. quite comfortably for me because uh, I couldn't take on a lot you know with a guy like Barrett he's such a deep instructor that he could give you five minutes of wisdom and then you spend six months trying to just chase that little tidbit of technical you know, wisdom he shared with you. Uh, so there was a lot of work uh, that went in there. But yeah, I'm very uh, honored that I got to sit you know, three feet from him and listen to his tone and his technique because he's got incredibly sophisticated technique. And I'm saying this is uh, somebody that's listened to pretty much all of the great traditional contemporary harp players perform. He's got some of the best technique in the world. And when you get to experience that firsthand, not over Skype or through a video or just firsthand, feel that energy, it motivates you differently. And you want to be that. You want to chase that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's he's just one of the most natural teachers. You know, He clearly is desperate to teach Whatever, yeah. Yeah. whatever it is, it doesn't matter what the topic is. If if he yeah. notices that he can help you in any way, like I, yeah. I picked him up from the airport when he was doing a workshop here, and like I, I, I said something really offhand about harmonica microphones, like oh I've never been able to cup a, a bullet, my hands are too small, and and he's just like, let me show you, and like within five minutes he's shown me how to do it. It's like he's not made my hands any bigger, but he's just fixed it. Um, yeah. He's just got this desire um yep. it's very powerful and it's not just uh, uh from what i understand he teaches martial arts too and i would bet he's just as good at that uh you know instructing people in that uh context and uh, on that subject as he is with blues and harmonica yeah no he's uh one of a kind and uh, yeah, yeah. I, what seeing him on stage was was quite quite an amazing experience because you, you know you listen to recordings of people and, and it always sounds great um, and then you hear it on stage and, and it's, it, it can still sound great, but there's, there's maybe a slight rough edge around it. It's not there with David. He's, he's just no. so smooth no. all the time. Legit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and did you, did you work with Gary Smith as well? Not directly, but I just, um, you know, I just chatted with Gary very, not too long ago. And, um, I was trying to tell him that, look, you're, you're, I, I know David is one of my teachers, like, but you are my teacher as well. You just don't know about it because the, the other cool thing for me was that I could take lessons from Dave, but I could go watch Gary live because he was still doing gigs back then. And, and that's another experience, uh, being six feet away from Gary Smith's amp. And uh, man, that's some of the greatest harmonica tone you'll ever, ever here uh, and he's such a cool cat so humble and uh, conducts his show with 
just this air of coolness, mm -hmm. um, another level of inspiration, another kind of inspiration. So Gary is a teacher, you know, like in the back of my head, if I try to hit this fat two-draw bend, I know 10 times out of 10, I am subconsciously trying to be like Gary. And I'm yeah. never going to be because he, only he can get that tone out of, uh, out of a microphone and an amp. And I'm saying this uh, very objectively. I have, uh, you know, my tone is okay. It doesn't stink. Uh, so most times I'm confident to go up, up on stage and play someone's rig and feel, feel like this is going to be okay. It's not going to suck. But if you do that standing next to Gary and he's played the same rig, then it's almost always cause for embarrassment because he just manages to milk this like 40 to 50 percent extra tone. And tone is like this magic metrical metric that I'm just, you know, it, you can't really capture it. But you know what I mean, that deep oh, yeah. sound, that big sound. He's got the hands and he's got the technique. And I just I just respect him a lot. No doubt. It's uh, it's funny. Um, I, I, I have a lot of students who kind of come and, and say, you know, I, I just I, I bought I bought a Fender basement. I bought a vintage basement and I, I got the same microphone that this guy uses. And I got this like and and I want to I want to learn about tone. How do I set the amp? I'm like you put the microphone down and you <laughs> practice with your hands. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's where it's at. That's where it's at in the hands. Absolutely. Um, I, something I wanted to ask you about, because I, I was chatting to uh, Hank Shreve um, last week in the podcast, and um, we were kind of talking about that, that difference between the kind of West Coast blues player sound and kind of further East, and that there's definitely a kind of uh, swingy kind of feel, really laid back uh, thing. How, where do you think that comes from? I, you know, I don't know specifically, but I do know that a lot of West Coast blues gets associated. Now, there was a, a thriving Oakland uh, scene, for instance, and a thriving L.A. blues scene. And we we're going back, you know, 70, 80 years. And, and these were black scenes, you know, mm -hmm. top of the line uh, musicians, uh, transplants from other states, kind of like with the Chicago thing. Uh, folks from the Delta moving. So the, the West Coast had its own blues scene. But in more recent times, I think, you know, disciples uh, uh, of some of these great musicians. So folks like on the harmonica, you could say, you know, guys like William Clark and Rod Piazza, who followed that George Smith path uh, uh, and style of playing. Uh, they kind of redefined this West Coast sound on the harp. And they definitely went for that swing sound. Mm -hmm. um, was that... George Smith inspired, I'm not sure, but that's like almost a definitive West Coast feel that uh, a lot of the harp players chase. And obviously some of that is, you know, I've incorporated that uh, consciously or not in my playing, especially when I'm doing third position. Mm -hmm. That's from like William Clark or Rod. Um, and, but, you know, speaking of West Coast players, you have Kim Wilson, that's also someone from, from the same region, but he has a different vibe different style so the reality is it just probably depends on what an individual player choose chooses to pursue you mm -hmm. know you could be st sitting here in california and and try to be uh, a sony sony terry stylist but does that make you a, a not west coast player you know sure. so i think those regional styles have started i mean they've they've been blurred for a while now and uh, i've been i've been to chicago and i know players there that play more like william clark than i'll ever hear over here mm -hmm. which is kind of funny right uh, but, um so yeah uh, I, I don't know what to say specifically about that but i do know that as far as for for me the west coast context is very heavily defined by those those two cats like william clark and rod rod piazza yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And also the thing that I, I was kind of noticing um, when I'm kind of, I, I went to see Rick Estrin play and and then I was I was watching the uh, kind of behind the scenes footage of uh, you guys recording It Takes Three. Um, and and I, I'm noticing Kid Anderson is is everywhere. And, and oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like there must be some musicians that are kind of, you know, they're members of bands that are, jumping between different players and that must be setting a lot of the sound as well. Right. So definitely when you have those kinds of, you know, entities, um, and Rick is another one of these guys, you know, he's a, he's a 
he's an established legend here on the West Coast. Um, and they have a style, and that style becomes very commonplace, where people like the next generation, people like me, are trying to pursue that style, chase mm. that sound. Then you develop a musical culture, as you say, band bands start entire bands start to play like that and then you can hire another guitar player on another day and chances are they know the same songbook and they know the same style and the same feel so there is definitely a culture around that yes you're right um and do you find that that you're kind of working on on being that sort of traditional player kind of very tongue block centric and uh, not kind of bringing in the kind of slightly more modern like overblow styles. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, maybe it's musical preference. Uh, maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's convenience. I don't, I don't know quite sure. Maybe it's a combination of all these things. But the re- but the reality is for me, uh, I've never been. Uh, I've always been like a minimalist, like less is more kind of guy. So mm-hmm. if I had five minutes today and you said hey work on something on the harmonica i want to try to play like big walter mm-hmm. that's just where my head's at uh, i love guys who can play overblows smoothly where it's like guys like grunling for, for instance you don't even realize when he sneaks one in and it just it's part of his you know his playing just as much as a, an octave for instance, would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's never really been like a technical desire of mine because I I, I would much rather play a, a stronger, toneful, more accessible note. That's where my time would be better spent for me. And it's the same with speed playing. Uh, I've just never uh, wanted to chase more notes in a shorter period of time. I've wanted to get the most out of one note and mm-hmm. it's this is pure taste you know this is not yeah. right or wrong but that's where my head's at but i think i think it's really important for uh other harmonica players to hear that because i think the thing that i've noticed is with with the internet and the kind of the rise of scholarship around everything you know every topic that you can think of people are getting more scholarly about it they they're learning about the the kind of all the different facets and the the extremes and so almost every harmonica player fairly early on in their journey nowadays is hearing about overblows and jason ritchie and they're thinking that that's kind of the the logical progression of what they need to be working on and so it's really nice to to realize that there are there are kind of players who are refining the the kind of more traditional techniques and really enriching it and, and working on that tone, because really what's going to get an audience excited is not whether you can hit that flat third in the upper octave, it's whether everything you're playing is sounding fat. That's where it's at. I mean, you just nailed it. Uh, you know, does it sound fat? And that kind of defines tone. And you don't need to have an amplifier or a microphone for that. Some of the best performances I have had the privilege of witnessing have been by uh, harmonica players that just played acoustic mm-hmm. to a room that just went silent because there was so much depth and weight to their tone mm-hmm. and not one audience uh, member would have have at that point gone well he didn't play an overblow so i'm not quite sure if you know that and and, and just to uh, address this you know this modern context of, of people people seeking out advanced techniques early on in their playing. This uh, information was uh, perfectly accessible to me as well. You know, I'm kind of like I started playing in in 2004, so it was pre YouTube, but we knew what overblows were and everybody knew how to play them. And Jason was coming through uh, this the Bay Area blues route you know, twice a year. So I got to see Jason live, live very early in my playing days and it just devastated me. It almost almost made me cry to watch him. He, he's Actually, he's like a bad example for someone to starting out to try to pursue because I don't think people realize how much work that man has put in. 
mm-hmm. to, to be as good as he is. That those overblows don't define Jason's style. It's it's a, there's a lot more more to what he's doing than just one or two techniques. And and the fact is, this is not stated enough. He can play the hell out of the acoustic harp without any contraptions yeah. and he can play just as tastefully without ever hitting an overblow so those are more important aspects of his playing for me you know as a student um and so that's that's the thing is it really comes down to taste what sound lies in your head what is it that you're chasing it's true uh, for me uh, you know when when you talk about about drums as well i don't want to play the world's greatest drum solo but i do want to play the world's fattest blues shuffle Mm -hmm. that i know so am i going to invest my time just learning this or just this that's what that's what it comes down to yeah oh absolutely and i i think when i think about musicians i want to play with you know the, the drummer who wants to take tons of solos like I, my favorite drummer who I work with, whenever I, I, I give him the nod to take a solo, like I might get a fill. That's it. There'll be just like a, a two or three beat fill. And he's like, nope, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm I want to lay down the law. <laughs> That's it, man. That's where it's at. Definitely. Um, I, I got to say, like you, you were kind of downplaying your 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 fat tone in kind of um when 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 thinking about gary smith and and like this this is this is kind of kind of a big deal for me talking to you because it takes three is one of my favorite harmonica albums ever um and i I don't think there's well there's nobody on that album who i'm thinking who who invited this guy you know like (laughs) everyone there sounds like super fat and it's all about the tone and the tasteful licks and you know the the bends being so perfectly in tune and i don't know like it, it's such a great album um which it was uh, a big deal it was thank you thank you i really uh, i'm really happy that you like that album i was very uh, to be honest i was i wasn't sure footed uh when i walked into that studio because it was intimidating this was six years ago i had just been a year into playing you know, professionally. So where mm-hmm. I had in my head redefined myself as, okay, no longer software engineer boy trying to play harp. This is what you do. Now go make something of it. And then to be invited by, by the very guys that you've kind of uh, tried to emulate, and they're giving me the, the seal of approval. They're saying, you're, you're legit. We want you on this project. It's a special project. It's three generations. But in my head, I was like, how, what am I going to play today that they haven't already played before or they don't already play better than me before? And it was very terrifying at the time. Uh, but now that I look back, I realize I actually had a unique voice. I just didn't mm-hmm. realize it then because I was so caught up in trying to emulate my idols. Uh, so now, you know, six years later or whatever, I feel m- much differently, much more differently about that record. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very happy that it's out there in the world. Yeah, no, it, it's a great one. Um, and, and this kind of takes me in sort of like the, the next path of, of stuff I want to chat to you about, because I think it, it sounds like when you started being a professional musician, uh, you, you were being the kind of traditionalist and um, you weren't kind of saying, look, I have this Indian heritage. You were trying to do the, the you know, the, the West Coast blues guy. Uh, I, I'm assuming you were kind of playing all the standards and were you yeah. singing in English as well? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you make that, that transition? Why did you make that transition? Which obviously was the perfect decision, but um, how did that come about? Many, many reasons. Um, the reason to be traditionalist at the time was that was the context I was given mm-hmm. in, you know, as far as instruction, you know, having David Barrett is going to kind of ground you in that traditional style of playing, uh, no matter what. And my tastes had already musical listening preferences were already in that realm, mm-hmm. uh, where I wanted to listen more to muddy waters over time than to, uh, you know, even more rock Paul Butterfield, who I just adore, uh, and was one of the first albums I kind of learned, you know, front to back, just learned every song, every solo. But over time, I decided that 
what I liked most, more traditional uh, blues. Um, I was also noticing there's a very distinct division between blues traditionalists and more rock blues uh, players. Not, I'm not talking harmonica, just in the blues world. Mm. There's like two factions. Yeah. And I, at the time in my, uh, because it was early, early days for me, I had picked my tribe. And now I'm very, I look at all of it very differently. But back then I had picked my tribe and I thought this was the right tribe because this defined or this was more closely associated with real blues. Mm -hmm. It was a foolish thought at the time, but that's why I chose to be like that. You know, uh, kind of, that's the scene, man. You know, that's what the mm -hmm. audience wants to give them what you want. And the good thing was I was very good at it. Uh, and I still am. Most people, even Indians, don't realize that I'm Indian. They, they almost get blown away these days if they watch me doing like a little Walter song and then I come out with some Bollywood stuff and that's like this you can watch their faces just they're like why is this guy from Louisiana singing <laughs> my favorite Hindi song they don't realize it which is a win in for me in, in some ways uh, but the, the reason for the transition was uh, uh, I think Trump was one of the driving factors because the change in the political climate in around 20, I was starting to happen 2014. Uh, 2015 was when the poison started to permeate mm -hmm. uh, through the, through our culture. And that's when I started to see what the scene really was. I mean, outside of the context of blues. And I started to self-assess and go, what am I? Who am I? What am I saying? What am I? Who am I saying this to? And once you ask those questions, you have to kind of you know, want, or at least I wanted to more closely associate my art with me yeah. instead of trying to emulate something that was perhaps slightly more of an alien culture. So that's, you know, the reason for the start of it. Uh, very specifically for why I did the Bollywood Blues Project was because of this gentleman named Jim Pugh who runs this great non-profit music label called Little Village Foundation. And he's kind of like a, an A&R guy where he goes out and finds unsigned artists who have something interesting to say in the folk, blues, Americana, whatever, you know, in that realm of uh, traditional mm -hmm. music. And uh, I got to know Jim through the whole Greaseland and San Jose West Coast scene because he he started... You know, Jim has been around for eternity, but he, we had a chat one day and he said, Hey, what are you working on these days? And I said, well, you know, I want to do this project, taking Indian songs and making them blues, putting blues into them. And he said, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is a cool idea. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, this guy is crazy. This project is crazy. I'm going to get laughed at. Uh, by the blues people here and people in India are going to totally, you know, send me into permanent exile. I will never be allowed back into India for ruining these classics. That's not how it turned out. And uh, only good and great things have come out of that, that whole project. And I, I'm very pleased to say I'm much more sure-footed now about who I am, what mm. I'm saying, why I should say it. And it may be that five years down the line I'm doing something different but I know it'll be something true true to my spirit it won't be uh, I won't be faking anything and um, I won't be trying to represent something that I don't really believe in yeah no I I I, I really enjoyed kind of getting to know some of your your playing and and performing and and this just this amazing combination because it's not just that you're singing in Hindi and sometimes rapping, which I, I thought was great. I saw, <laughs> saw your your recent single. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Great video as well. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's you've also kind of captured some of the the the, the, the tonal quality. There are these kind of big vocal harmonies that that kind yeah, yeah. of feel very Bollywood. And it's yeah. not just you know I'm I'm doing a blues song in Hindi. You've 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 really mashed it together really nicely. Um, well, I'll tell you what, specifically about the harmonies, since you bring that up, they are, uh, you know, older Bollywood uh, songs had melodies that were very uh, inspired by R&B. Okay. Um, and 
even if there were harmonies in those old Bollywood songs, I would bet that whoever was composing back then was listening to doo-wop and rock and roll from the United States. And I love that whole realm and that genre of music. So those harmonies are almost like instinctive to me. I listen to the melody and I go, we got to put a harmony here. And it's probably because of this song that's a context in my head. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, what 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 are the difficulties? What were the difficulties of kind of making those Bollywood songs fit in that kind of more rock and roll blues context? I'll give you two song examples um, where it was completely uh, like a no brainer to to redefine the song. Uh, there are certain songs from the 50s and 60s in Bollywood that are straight up blues and swing numbers. There's one called Ina Mina Dika. And if you haven't seen this, check it out. It's There's like a video of me doing it live or a couple of videos. Okay. But it's almost like Louis Prima, Bollywood okay. style. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I would bet that the guy was playing, paying tribute to mm -hmm. Louis Prima. He was you know, probably doing that very explicitly. Uh, so when you cover a song like that, it is, there's no issues. You can take a West Coast band and, uh, like, you know, guys like Kid Anderson who are amazing, already phenomenal players, and they listen to this and they go, oh, I know what to do with this. And, you know, you get the right treatment. But on my Hindi Man Blues album, there's another song that's uh, an old Bollywood song, and I can send you the exact spelling of this title, but it's called Sajan Re Jhut Mat Bolo, which means... Uh, my dear friend, don't don't lie to me. And it's a deep song, but really deep lyrics. Uh, it, I listened to that m many times over. I mean, I grew up with that song, so it wasn't like mm -hmm. I had to go listen to it. But when I had to recontextualize it, I said, what vibe do I want to capture when I do this? And the first thing was that came to mind was this Bo Diddley feel. was now that kind of thing that took like a minute to kind of mm. put together and then we had to try it out and when we did it was like okay now this works so that song it took some work there's other bollywood songs that you have to understand that it's not just the song uh for in the musical context itself the Bollywood productions are entire visual production so there's a whole mm -hmm. music video so when the song gets composed there's interludes and that are specifically written for choreography or drama that is you know that uh, takes place around that song the song is defining a context within the movie you know where for the next scene to follow mm -hmm. so the good thing is I grew up with these songs so I know what these interludes are and what they're doing. So whether I choose to keep them or not is my call. And it's a very quick one in my head. I'm kind of, you know, I'm not working with unfamiliar songs. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like being a DJ where you slice and dice and take this and take that out and put something, I'll leave that in or go, this is a cool part that'll really work on harp. So there's no really one size fits all method. It just comes down to the song and what I want to do with it. Very cool. Well, I mean, it, it does, it does sound so natural and it doesn't sound like a gimmick. You know how, like, if you, you could quite easily, if someone described it, like blues and Bollywood, it could sound a bit gimmicky, but it just, it, it feels so natural. And it, it's just so compelling to listen to. I, I really enjoy uh, listening to it. It's uh, cool, very man. cool. Um, so... Yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought very briefly. That's I, wanted, all right. <laughs> I, <to> my life. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you um, about um, how how your career is going uh, in India, because um, I, I I I was looking at your YouTube videos and the number of views that uh, that some of your recent singles have been getting are kind of astronomical, and yeah. like no, nobody in the blues world gets that number of views, right. so. Uh, what, what's what's happening? How's it how's it going? You know, it's a good question. I I, I ask myself that question every day, especially this year. This has been a very, very strange year. The Sony Music deal was really awesome because it just fell into my lap. Uh, you know, their uh, A and R people were looking for Indian talent doing some newer things, they were going in newer directions, and they found me on YouTube or Spotify. I'm not sure what, uh, but. When they approached me, I told them, look, I'm not going to, I don't know what you think I do, but I, 
I'm going to keep doing this because I play blues and I write songs around that sound. So if you think I'm going to do some electronic stuff or more contemporary pop stuff, I'm sure there's great guys who can do that. I'm not the guy. And they were okay with that. They said, do your thing. We won't stop you. Um, so it kind of opened up this whole market for me. And my new album, it's actually out. I haven't officially announced it. It's on YouTube for anyone who wants to listen. Uh, it's a seven song, kind of a mini album, a mm-hmm. uh, mix of originals and uh, covers. Uh, but they just, you know, it, it's out there and uh, it's classified as Indian pop, which is hilarious to me because... <laughs> You know, it's just blues, man, to me. It's like different flavors of blues. And I think no matter what comes of this, this will be a huge milestone for me personally to to have been able to open this market to the sounds that you and I both love and, and hopefully mm-hmm. folks tuning into this podcast love and sell it as pop in 2020 mm-hmm. to a, a market that has, you know, it's probably 60 years detached from that style of music. Mm. Uh, so there's that. And I also did my first tour of India last, uh, well, year beginning of this year, right before the pandemic uh, uh, hit. And so that was a very fulfilling thing because I never thought I'd go back to India as a musician and take my band from the U.S. and, and be able to play different cities and stuff. So that was great. The downside bummer with, with the whole shutdown for me as far as career goes is uh, you know, I can't follow up mm-hmm. to the Sony music album with another tour just yet. Mm-hmm. So how that plays out, I don't know. It's great to have a million views on, views on something and, and have, you know, uh, a younger generation of Indians just writing you and saying great things about uh, what you're doing without even realizing your blues influences. They just like the songs for what they are, which makes me very happy. That's very cool. Um, yeah, it, it, it'd be interesting to see kind of how it, it plays out because I imagine that the the kind of the experience of working with a big label in a kind of pop context, I'm assuming that there are expectations and kind of pathways that they want you to, to go down of uh, promotional tours to, to help sell things and numbers of albums. Well, the, so here's the thing that's changed is... Um, Things have become extremely digital now. So, with with a label like Sony, everything's digital. There's no physical albums anymore, and for good reason. No one's playing CDs. Mm-hmm. You know, vinyl is kind of making a resurgence, but really, in, in in the Indian market, no one's buying vinyl either. As far as I, I say, numerically, you know, to be profitable. So, mm-hmm. a lot of this has been done digitally, and uh, which is why you know, going back to this whole live streaming thing, I've my Promotional things for Sony are, are live streaming uh, little mini concerts from home uh, instead of being out there in India doing it in person. Uh, this today at 5 a.m. I gotta be I gotta stay up, so <laughs> I've started drinking coffee early. Um, I have to do a, a live stream uh, with a FM radio station in, in India, so um, I'm not sure uh, that I would physically have to be there if I can, you know, figure out how to be. Uh, a reasonably good virtual presence, then that's how I'm going to carry forward with my promotion for this album. Very cool. It, it, it comes right back round to, to what we were talking about at the beginning, just how everything is transforming so quickly. Um, and yeah, if you can if you can maintain that that kind of live feel digitally, that's going to be fantastic. Um, I know a lot of people won't believe that it's possible, but but I, I think that. There is there is just as much value in that kind of intimacy of, of the live performance online. I have a green screen now, so anything's possible. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's uh, that's very cool. Like I can't wait to see you performing from uh, well, some, you know the Sony thing. <laughs> the, the Sony thing was a brick wall behind me, and most people think I did it in the backyard, but it was done right here. So uh, you know already. Uh, like it's it's much much more easy easier to uh, take even the same video the same song and just recontextualize it and and change the vibe com- completely mm-hmm. and just by adding or subtracting a visual element you can change the audience's expectations and this is something I'm learning as I you know go along but it's it's fact it's just where things are yeah 
Absolutely. Well, yeah, no, that's a, a, an interesting new avenue to explore. Um, I'm very mindful of uh, taking up too much of your time. I'm really, really uh, thankful for, for spending this time with you today. Um, before before we, we wrap up, uh, is there anything new that you want to be promoting or, or anything that you want me to direct people to? I've been taking notes sure. for the show notes, so anything you've mentioned will be linked up. Um, sure. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you can always send folks to my website, which um, which is akikumar.com. Um, and, you know, they can follow me on Instagram. I have a Facebook fan page. Uh, those are good, uh, you know, places to go find me. Uh, and uh, like I said, the new album on Sony Music is out. It's I'm extremely proud of it because uh, the original songs I wrote are in Hindi, and some of them are in Hindi and English, but I, I really put in some effort into songwriting and composing and, and arranging. And it's all blues, country, very roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I hope folks who like even Little Walter enjoy it, you know, like a different, the same style presented in different contexts. I would really urge people to go check it out. I, I would uh, re- reiterate that. I, I think it's uh, fantastic stuff, really, really enjoyable to listen to and really entertaining videos for the singles that I've seen so far. So uh, I'll link up a bunch of stuff uh, that I've been watching um, and it, it, it sounds great. So thank you so much. This has been uh, really wonderful. I, I've enjoyed chatting to you. Likewise. Uh, and uh, I've calmed down a little bit. I was I was super excited about, about chatting to you. <laughs> Good. Good, good, good. Excellent. Well, take it easy and uh, hopefully we'll see each other in person uh, before too long when we can On travel the other again. side, yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, All right. I look care. forward to hearing you play soon. Okay, <laughs> cool. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tomlin's Harmonica Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. Join me next Monday for the next episode. Happy harping!